Welcome to episode 317 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. My third book, Break Out of Boredom, Low Tech Solutions for Highly Engaging Zoom Events, will officially launch in just six weeks on March 13th, 2023. That's the third anniversary of the world hitting pause as we all try to imagine world without in-person events. That happens to also be the three-year anniversary of my first virtual happy hour. That's right, my response to my in-person conferences-focused business being shuttered was to host a virtual happy hour. I had no idea it would lead to a thriving new business as a virtual event design consultant and executive Zoom producer. It did, and that's why I'm now sharing what I've learned while producing virtual events for amazing organizations like Feeding America, California WIC Association, and other nonprofits, associations, and higher education institutions. Join my book launch team now and you'll receive extra bonuses and early access just for committing to writing an Amazon review. Sign up at robbysamuels.com forward slash breakout launch. If you ever have to present virtually, you want this book. Again, the link to sign up for the book launch team is robbysamuels.com forward slash breakout launch. If you'd rather hire a professional Zoom producer or need help with virtual event design, reach out. My team and I would love to support you and your team. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest is a sought-after speaker and writer. She works with people and organizations that want to lead with authenticity to create happier, more effective teams. Described as the confidence fairy godmother we all need, she has worked with Fortune 500 companies and professional associations from across North America. She has shared her insights in over 150 articles in publications, including Huffington Post, Forbes, and Harper's Bazaar. Her book, You Got This, The Ultimate Negotiation Guide for Professional Women, provides a fresh and instantly applicable toolkit for anyone ready to develop their authentic voice in negotiation. Please join me in welcoming Leela Gallion. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Robbie. Uh, this is a show about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Leadership to me is about authenticity and getting increasingly clear about who I am and how I want to show up in the world has been a key part of my leadership journey. So I remember in undergrad, I was surrounded by really cool, smart people who were going to law school. And that was how they were making an impact in the world. So I was like, well, clearly I'm going to go to law school. And then I took one constitutional law class. <laughs> and uh, let's just say it wasn't a fit for me personally. And then I was kind of like, okay, how can I make an impact on the world around me? And I was like, I'm going to get my master's in public policy, right? Like that's law adjacent and that's how you affect change. And then I worked for the city of New Orleans where I'm from. And it was clear that that wasn't a fit for me either. And what has continued to become clear to me as a writer and a speaker now is that my ability to share what's happening between my ears is a unique skill set. And my capacity to take really hard things, right? Talking about my miscarriage, talking about chronic illness or navigating caregiving responsibilities, right? Things that are really heavy and difficult and making them feel accessible, making that relationship with anxiety feel like something that isn't happening in a silo or to be ashamed of, but is instead a universal human experience. And so the way that I think about my own leadership is really how can I be aligned with my strengths and how can I live with authenticity? Because that allows me to affect change in the world around me in a way that being a civil servant didn't for me, in a way that getting a law degree didn't for me. So for me, it's all about alignment with your strengths and your own authenticity. 
I can so appreciate many pieces of that, having taken constitutional law myself. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that class until you said that. (laughs) Uh, I also attended a seminar, So You Want to Be a Lawyer, which led me to realize I did not want to be a lawyer. (laughs) It was very helpful, very helpful seminar. Um, And I went on to get a master's in social work in a, in a similar, an effort to figure out like, how do I show up and help and add value in the world? And I love that you, you were just like trying to align what you could do best. And this idea that you can translate what's between your ears and share that with people, your, your like lived experience become lessons and learnings for other people to, to take and apply their own lives to, to their own betterment. I think that's an incredible value add that many people don't even recognize as a value add. So I think that's really cool that you found this sort of space now, you mentioned undergrad. I want to roll the clock back even further. <laughs> I want to know, Lilia, what were you like as a kid on the playground? Or did you run for, for school office in elementary, middle school, high school? Did your teachers think you had great potential? Or were you that quiet kid in the back of the room? Like, what kind of kid were you like? Uh. I love this question. So as a parent, I'm having conversations with my parents about what I was like at this age. So my kid was about to turn four. And I said, you know, mom, what was I like? And she said, uh, you were, what did she say? You were never, you never misbehaved. You were always so easy. And if you did, it was so easy to redirect you. And I said, well, surely those are rose colored glasses, right? Surely I misbehaved like any kid, right? And I asked my dad in a separate conversation. And I said, dad, what was I like when I was a kid? And he paused and he thought, and he said, you were very eager to please. And I was like, well, that's not pathological. So thanks for that. And I, I think so much of my childhood, I was a really loving kid, um, like very, very affectionate, very, very sensitive to the world around me. Um, very curious, very talkative. Like the only time I got in trouble in school was because I was talking too much. Now I'm a professional public speaker and communicator, right? Like it makes sense. Um, But I do think some of the things that I'm unlearning as an adult were things that I learned um, very young and kind of the way I moved in my family unit, the way I moved in school was like, be good and be compliant and do what you're supposed to. And those are things that made me very successful. And I'll, you know, put air quotes around that, but it put me on what I call the current of affirmation. And when I used to do coaching, I worked a lot primarily with women who struggled with this. And when you're high achieving, when you're good at things, you can end up on this river. Imagine a current on a river and you do things based on what people need from you based on what you're getting validated for or based on what you're getting encouraged to do. And I think so often that current of affirmation overrides any personal desire or instinct. And when I was coaching and now in my speeches and my writing, so much of it is how do we come back into alignment with what we want and quiet those outside voices that can get so loud. And so particularly for people who are, you know, oh, I just get promotion after promotion or I get recruited for my next job. I've never applied for a job. In those instances, especially, I think it's valuable to pause and say, not just, you know, if we're looking at a Venn diagram, it's not just what does the world need and what can I get people to pay me to do? But there's a third factor that I didn't know until maybe 2015 was was something you could consider, which is how do I want to spend my time? And so looking at those three factors, what does the world need? What can I get people to pay me for? And how do I want to spend my time? Like that's that that alignment of our strengths with how we want our life to look is an important question that I'm really grateful to have been asked in 2015 through the New Leaders Council. That's really cool. New Leaders Council was a great program. I was in there in 2011 as well. Um, And what you're describing, you know, being sort of easy, affable, um, eager to please, you know, in some ways I have, I have young kids too, who are almost five and seven. And, you know, when they talk back or have a, have a backbone, right. You're like, just, just be more compliant. But like, in reality, it's good that they're getting some mm-hmm. skills around how to speak up and how to say what they, what they need and how to, how to, 
how to share their emotions, you know, not through just reaction, but like words and like mm-hmm. explain what they need more. And, you know, it's not that I want them to just sit and be quiet, right? Like we're, we're past that era of parenting. Um, but I can see how you have to then at some point discover who you actually are when you're not just seeking affirmations, um, where you're not just seeking like people liking you because you're easygoing and that at some point you're like, wait, but what do I want? I've just sort of been flowing along here. And I was feisty, right? Like I was a strong, a, a smart, curious kid. And I was very aware of what people wanted from me. And I think as an adult, that's a skill that I'm learning to use and not always rely on exclusively, right? Um, I used to tease that on the current of affirmation, I would be a very successful fundraiser who had made a lot of money for causes I care about and was totally miserable, (laughs) right? Like I could get the fundraising job, no problem, but I didn't like it. Yeah. Um, In my second book, uh, Small List, Big Results, I talk about discover your ideal client is a Venn diagram. And there's three circles. One says expertise, which is the things you just know a lot about, you can do with ease. Uh, passion, which is what you would do for no money. You just love this so much. You love talking about it, love doing it. It's just, you're like, this is my jam. And then the last circle has um, basically that you're able to get paid and provide value. Like that people recognize the, uh, the value of what you do and they want to pay you. So you're, you know, you're, you're creating that positive impact and you're getting paid for it. And the in-between is your ideal client. They want yeah. you for the experience you have on a topic you love so much that you would just do for free, but they see the value of what you can offer them and the change they can achieve through working with you that they, they like want to pay you. And I agree that too many of us are sometimes stuck only doing two of those three at any one point and can find ourselves kind of trapped. And at what point though, I'm trying to think of who you were, like, what, what what was like uh, sort of early days like for you? Were you thinking about your future? Was college a given, you know, 12, 13 years old? What did you think you were going to be? Like, was there a career plan sort of laid out for you? So I'm going to sing it, which is, we'll see what happens. When I was a kid and, you know, kids get asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was, I had too many things that I wanted to be to keep track of them. So I made up a song so that I could remember that I wanted to be an artist, a writer, a golf cart driver, physically fit to do the V-sit. If you remember the like in the presidential fitness awards, which my school was big on, you would like sit with your legs spread and see how far you could reach the V-sit. And so that was my song. Um, I wanted to be an artist, which I do a lot of my own design work now. One of my best friends is my... um, designer and illustrator of my book and has taught me a ton about InDesign and graphic design and, and I can draw on my iPad now. So I have that outlet. Um, it was interesting this year to really claim the identity as a writer. So I've written for national publications for many years. I have a book. Um, and yet I was still hesitating to call myself a writer and to really claim that identity and focus energy and effort on that part of my life has been incredibly rewarding. Um, and then as for the golf cart driver, I'm very fortunate. My first job out of college was at the Dallas Zoological Society, the foundation that supported the Dallas Zoo. It doesn't exist anymore because it's a private zoo now, but that doesn't matter. I got to drive a eight-seater zebra print golf cart for major donors all around the zoo, behind the scenes at elephants, behind the scenes with the snakes. It was all very cool. And I can still do the V-sit poorly, but I can. You are amazing. Not many of us can say that we have achieved all of our life goals from 12 years old. (laughs) I also, well, I remember... um, my mom saying to me, well, none of those things are terribly profitable. And I said, that's cool. I'll be a doctor during snack time. So problem yeah, solved. You pretty much, you had it all wrapped up there. I got to figure it out, mom. What was the college plan? Was there a particular degree that was in your sights? So it was always clear that I was going to go to college out of state. My mom has talked about, her, her mom wasn't able to go to college um, and for for her, the only option was in New Orleans. Like it wasn't ever discussed that she would leave New Orleans. And so for me, she was really, it, 
it was about where all of her brothers left the state. Um, so there's some messages there. And so for her, since I was young, she always said, like, you can't stay in New Orleans. You have to go somewhere else. Um, because she wanted me to have a wider experience than she was afforded. And I think, you know, I went to the same school. My mom's a, a teacher at a small private school, and I was there in the womb through age 19. And I wore my high school class ring every single day for seven years until I moved back to New Orleans. I wore a fleur-de-lis on my finger every single day until I moved back to New Orleans. I remember when I got to college, you know, started dating pretty quickly. And my college boyfriend said, it seems like you're having a really hard time with the transition. And I went to school in Dallas and I said, I'm only crying once a day. I think I'm doing great. And, you know, I think my, my high school principal did us a real service. He said, Country Day is the name of my school. He said, don't look for Country Day and don't look for New Orleans because you're not going to find either. I can't tell you how many of my classmates went for a semester, even a whole year, and then transferred home. New Orleans is such a special place, and especially for folks like myself who were at this same small community for so long, it was a big adjustment. And like I said, I thought I was doing great crying once a day. I'm a deeply feeling person. I've never been hesitant to express my emotions in healthy outlets. And, you know, for me, college was a really important time of, it was the longest I'd ever been away from New Orleans or my mom. Uh, the longest I'd been away was 11 days for a choir trip from either. And then I left for college. Um, and Katrina hit the year after I started, I was in college. So I was a sophomore. Um, and so college was really important to me. I knew I was going to go to grad school. So I, I teased that they had to fight me to pick a major. <laughs> so I like, I was like, waited till the last possible moment to declare. And then I was a sociology major. Um, so well aligned in, in the social work uh, focus. And then I, I don't think I double majored. No, I did a minor in political science, but it was like really close. And I was like, who cares what I, if I double major, <laughs> get a minor. Um, and then, like I said, my master's is in public policy. Yeah. It's really interesting. Our parallels on that front. Mm -hmm. um, I went in with a, some experience doing lobbying and educating of lobby mm. of, of lawmakers. So people were like, Oh, you should go into politics. So I kind of went in with poli sci as my, my, default major mm -hmm. and I discovered sociology in my third year when I was really close to finishing poli-sci and then I finished the poli-sci <laughs> part of the degree in like the next you know three semesters um so I ended up a dual as well and oh. with that sort of focus yeah and then a couple of minors thrown in did you have a plan I mean was was grad school just the next step so you weren't thinking much about career I mean you ended up doing the whole thing at the driving around the golf cart, you met that life goal. But when you think of your actual career, what was those first few years in a career about for you? Was there a particular way you were trying to show up in the world? Great question. You're a really fun question asker. Um, you know, I look at a career scavenger hunt. And when I was coaching, I literally had people draw out a career scavenger hunt where they're saying like, what you can like draw each of the jobs you've had and then like consider what the decision-making process was. And for me, it was like following the breadcrumbs or the little sparkle of things that I enjoyed. And so in my first job out of college, I had interned at the Dallas Zoo and was like, wow, I've been so focused on public policy. I'd worked um, as an intern for NARAL Pro-Choice America. And it was all very much like legislatively policy oriented. And like thinking about marketing and like the Kimberly Clark Zoolog or chimpanzee forest and like thinking about corporate sponsorships and all these things, which, you know, I have more mixed feelings about now than I did then. But it's interesting to consider at the time, what excited me about the role was it was different and it was using my brain and my skills in a different way. It's funny to actually think back to a proposal I did for Boo at the Zoo and that I really enjoyed the graphic design element, I can now say. Um, and then when I went to policy school, there was an alumni in residence program, and, and which I've now done, which is pretty fun. But a student came and said, or a 
alum came and said, I work for Mayor Menino in Boston. And what I love about local government is I can see my impact. And I said, great, that's what I'll do. And so I went and I interned for Mayor Menino in Boston. And then I came home and I worked for Mitch Landrew, our mayor uh, in New Orleans. And I remember, you know, thinking about city government and saying, I knew it was going to be hard, but I didn't know it would be this hard. And that my like bubbly effervescent personality, I was the youngest person in my department by, that's not true, that my boss was closer to my age, but everyone else had been, you know, at the city for longer than I'd been alive. And, you know, some of my colleagues like just read the newspaper openly at their desk. Some of them, um, I loved my work at the city in some ways, and I also found it really challenging. And when I left, it was because of political reasons that, that, that I found untenable um, and didn't align with my values, not from the mayor himself, but from somebody else. And so my time at the city really evolved my thinking of like, how can I affect change because I'm not having the impact I want to see? Um, I don't have the, like our department doesn't have the access to resources. Like I can, I can move the needle in such small ways. What else could I be doing? And so I ran a political campaign. That's a big leap. It was, <laughs> it was a friend was running and I really believed in her. Um, she had a really powerful criminal justice reform background and commitment. Um, she was running for city council and we did not win. And that was, um, what prompted me to start my business. So it worked out just as it needed to. That's really interesting. So prior to being an entrepreneur, there isn't like you have this, you know, 15 year history of working in, in corporate or nonprofits. You, you sort of had these, these different experiences. You were in, you were a lot, very local government was really the mm -hmm. plan. And then campaign work, which is an entirely different world to itself. Which, which that was never the plan. Right. right. Like almost instantaneously, people would be like, oh, I know who I'm going to call when I run for office. Like you're doing such a great job. And I'm like, and I'll recommend someone amazing. Like this is never going to be my thing. This yeah. is one and done. But I have to say running a campaign and being an entrepreneur have some similarities. Mm -hmm. There's some interest. It's, it's probably it's not something you would think to do as a gateway into entrepreneurship. But having gotten yourself that far out of the norm of everyday day to day nine to five work. And having like having the idea of a campaign and like pulling people together and you know being that that kind of leadership opportunity, mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting to have that going into entrepreneurship. When you first went into entrepreneurship, what was the driving sort of impetus to do that? And who did you first serve? Like, what was the initial product service, and for whom? The moment I knew was in political campaigns, we have these like giant yard signs, right? Like way bigger than I am as a human. And my friend David was helping me get them under my, my boss, my candidate's house. So in New Orleans, houses are typically raised. And so yard signs are stored under people's houses. So he and I are unloading the, the signs from his trunk, like his big SUV, and putting them under the house. And I said, thank you so much for doing this. And he said... I wouldn't be able to do this if I didn't work for myself. And I was this moment where I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to do that too. Because what I, I did, I, I cracked three teeth from daytime teeth clenching during the campaign. I wear a bite guard at night. Um, I'm not built for political campaigns. I am built to be your most enthusiastic volunteer. Who's going to host a fundraiser for you. And um, is going to really, like mobilize people and I can use that organizer mindset, right? Like absolutely. I'm hosting a fundraiser next week or in two weeks. Um, and what I knew with absolute certainty is having agency over my time was a game changer. And so even when I was working 16 hours a day, I had absolute agency over where I did it, how I did it and what my hours were. And so that was a huge impetus for me and what it, what it allowed me to do to your question about um, what the focus area was is really keep my brain engaged and do such a variety of things. I teased that I was a Jacqueline of all trades when I started out. And it's basically any progressive aligned cause that people who knew my skill set came to me with. 
And that's how I started my business is I went to people who knew my work and I said, hey, I'm looking for project-based work. Here are some of the things I've done in the past. If you hear of anything, let me know. And so I did a marketing campaign for a regional environmental nonprofit. I did strategic planning for several of the largest high schools in New Orleans and uh, raised money for juvenile justice serving organization and ultimately became their development and communications director, but on a 30, 30 hour a week schedule so that I could still grow my business. And so that evolved and through the new leaders council, which, you know, Ravi, we we're both alums. The NLC has been life altering for me because it was the first group of people that really asked me those questions about how I wanted my life to look. And it created the container for me to do rich exploration surrounded by a cohort who shared a lot of my values in terms of having an impact on the world. I'm curious, how old were you when you went through New Leaders Council? 30. Okay. Yeah. I was uh, 36 and mm. I and I was definitely on the older side. Um, and the mean, the average age was probably about 28 just out of or just the last year of grad school. Um, so I had a little more lived experience. And so when we talked about what you want to accomplish in five or 10 years, like I had already sort of achieved some of those things. Um, but it is, like you said, um, if folks are young professionals or no young professionals who are listening, they should check out their city chapters all across the United States, not just in like the coasts, <laughs> but like in New Orleans, yeah, <laughs> like there are, these, yeah, right. And, there's and, gr- chapters yeah. everywhere, which is really wonderful. Newleaderscouncil.org. And we'll put the link in the show notes as well. So people can check that out. I, I, uh, I remember having a moment in that, um, in that work where I was um, asked to, to map out a day in the life, like a perfect day. And finding that exercise years later and realizing that I had achieved that, <laughs> that like I have control over my life. That's not what you're describing. Now, when you're saying, when you first go into business, you were just like, I have availability and I've got some skill sets. I want to say what, yes to only things I love and only do things that I love and have the kind of impact I want to have. But at some point, it's going to be easier to like build a business when you get known for something. How did you narrow that down? Did you narrow that down? Do you have multiple tracks of work? I'm a multi-passion entrepreneur. I totally can get behind that. But who who are you serving today? And how is that? How, what was that sort of journey mm. like? At the time, I remember I was doing a lot of work with an organization called America Achieves. And it was supporting teachers and principals who wanted to be a voice in education policy. So cool, right? Like helping educators write op-eds, planning really amazing conferences that allowed them to connect deeply with one another and feel enriched, professionalizing a a job, a role that is so um, diminished in our society and yet so necessary for its functioning. And so I did so many cool things I was really passionate about. And the way the New Leaders Council came into my life is it was January of 2015. And I recognized how much I was a Jacqueline of all trades, how much I was moving in so many concurrent directions in a way that that didn't feel rewarding. And while I was very good at strategic planning, I don't like it. <laughs> while I was very good at fundraising, like not a fan as a key body of my work, right? As a volunteer, I'm super happy to do it. When it comes to um, fundraising as a profession, you know, grateful for all the people who do it, but that's not me. And through the reflection I did in NLC, I realized that five women had come to me that month looking for support in negotiation. And I remember where I was sitting, Josh Cox was right here, CG was across from me, right? Like exactly how it felt in the room. And the the idea for my business started to unfold. And my first sort of work I was doing was really focused on people who identify as women in negotiation. And I I remember beta testing, which at the time I called dress rehearsal. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to call it beta testing. And it was a group of my NLCers and a few other friends. And one of them came to me and said, you know who needs this is trial lawyers. The law firms will never pay for it, but the professional associations will. Would you come give a speech in Boca Raton? And so my very first speech in Florida gorgeous resort. I think I laughed out loud when I walked in the lobby. I was like, are we serious right now? And, you know, it was, it was a really successful speech. My PowerPoint didn't work. 
we got up there and like the tech was, was off and the tech team was up there trying to help me. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it without, like, I want my time more than I want the PowerPoint if this isn't going to work. And I got so much spin business. So many people from that room hired me for new gigs that that became my career. And so it wasn't, I knew I liked public speaking from having been a nonprofit uh, board chair and, you know, hosted our big fundraiser, but it, it became really clear to me when I was getting such a strong reception. And I remember the moment it was the Texas women rainmakers and as female trial lawyers in Texas. And they came to me and they said, it was just such an amazing conversation, right? I finished 20 minutes early because I was so excited and, and sped through my content. And then I just had this amazing conversation with the audience. And I got off stage and I thought, this was the best hour of my career. And it was this absolute clarity that being on stage and engaging with smart people who are looking, who are seekers, right? Who are looking to grow and learn and develop, like that is what I am meant to do. And the work I do now has shifted entirely. So I don't do any coaching. I don't do any consulting. It's I thrive as a writer and a speaker. And the work I do now is no longer focused on gender. I was moving away from that for a long time, talking about people with lots of different marginalized identities. And now really focusing on organizations and individuals who want to lead with authenticity to create happier and more effective teams. Okay, I'm going to unpack some of the stuff we just said because that was some good. That was a really interesting journey to unfold. Great. I'm ready. One of the parts that I thought was most interesting, and you've brought this up a couple of times, so I want to underscore this. The opportunity through NLC, New Leaders Council, although people can develop the space on their own, mm -hmm. to be reflective, often it's helpful to do this with a peer accountability partner or a mentor or a coach or a community of some kind, because what we're asking ourselves to do is, is to look beyond our comfort zone. And there is sort of this next layer of opportunity. So for you to have the space to sit back and sort of understand what's happening, who's already coming to me, how does that align with the way I want to show up in the world? And so once you have had that experience, I imagine the next time you made a decision about the direction of your business, that you were going to move away from a gender-specific definition of who you work with to a more expansive um, less demographic and more psychographic understanding of people, that that was probably an easier shift, I imagine, because you've had the first, did it one time, and you're like, oh, I know this feels right again. I, I now know what it feels like when things are less aligned and more aligned. And so just for people listening to like pay attention when things, you could have loved the role you had when you first had it, and now it's not so much. It's like you've evolved. You want something different or more challenging or a different kind of impact, different kind of work, um, just not as appealing to you. And just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Like I think that's the problem is that we get stuck in these roles. Um, but I think that you doing the work around um, women in negotiation and that you got a hook into early on um, a particular demographic or a particular role that people needed that help trial lawyers like that's a that's a cool niche like <laughs> um there's associations and chapters and communities and like there's spaces where you could be brought in and become known as the go-to person mm -hmm. so that's much more helpful than just generically being like available for people who have trouble with negotiation like generally um so that's really neat and how did you apply those same process to define your your work today around authenticity like, how did you make the space to make the decision to switch? And how do you now define who you serve? And you said mm. it a little bit, but like, if I was sitting across from someone and they were telling me some story, how would I say, oh, you know who you need to meet? And then I would introduce you. I'd be like, oh. talk to Lilia, because like, she will help you. Great question. One of the things that was a key influence for me in my journey was my coach, Lindsay Bryan Podvin. I remember she said, what you're suggesting, what you're describing, I think sounds like a sabbatical. And I remember pausing and really like taking a deep breath and then saying, but don't take away my writing. And it was January of this year. And I've been doing a ton of speaking 
I had a very good Q1 um, by the time I, like it was already clear that financially I would be in a good position to stop doing business development for a bit. And I invested tons of time in my writing and ultimately decided to come out as polyamorous and queer in April of this year. And I started by coming out to my newsletter community. And for those who might not be familiar, polyamory for me means that my husband and I share a lifelong commitment to one another and to our family. And we also uh, believe in the possibility and explore the, the opportunities for love outside of our marriage. And that evolution for me, so much of my career, I mean, I vividly remember my first like I had just started my business when we were like really committing to, to an open relationship model long-term. And I remember the consulting contract that I had at the time that was how I paid rent, I guess my mortgage by then. Um, and, and I was getting hit on relentlessly. And I thought, if this person finds out that I am polyamorous and attracted to women and people of all genders, I won't be able to fend off his advances. And so I got really, I was like, he can't know. That was the thing I kept chanting is like, I need to hide this to protect myself and to protect my business. And I didn't remember that until I was writing my coming out essay. I didn't remember how that sentence, we'll call him Jeff, that's not his name. Jeff can't know was how I made every decision, not every decision, but, but how I moved through the world and how I thought about my own uh, relationship and sexual orientation. And how far I have come that April of this year, I mean, I describe in, in my speech on authenticity, I say, this was the scariest thing I have ever done voluntarily. And I came out to my newsletter community and I was so afraid. I mean, my hands are sweating even just talking about it now. Um, but I came out to my newsletter community and I was so afraid that people would be cruel, that people would unsubscribe. Robbie, I had more people unsubscribe when I wrote about peer pressure to get Botox. Truly Botox, people unsubscribe more. And I was like, not one way or the other. I was just like, there is peer pressure to get Botox. It's basically the thesis statement of like, I don't know how I feel about Botox. And more people unsubscribe about that than polyamory. And queer identity. And so the, the massive relief I felt prompted me to do even more introspection. Um, I came out on social media the following week. I came out on my friend's podcast that's like the top 2% of podcasts in the world. Um, the only one in the room. Highly recommend it. Um, and then I wrote a piece about it for HuffPo, the artist formerly known as Huffington Post. And... So much of my work now centers on how can I support people who feel, as Laura Cathcart Robbins, host of the Only One in the Room podcast, as Laura would say, like people who feel like they're the only one in the room, who feel that sense of being othered, who crave that sense of belonging. What I've noticed is people who don't share my identities are coming to me and saying thank you, are coming to me and saying, I feel seen in your stories, even if I don't relate to the specifics. And in my speech that, that focuses on authenticity, which is really to, to your question of like, how do I know Lilia is the right person? PwC, uh, which used to be PricewaterhouseCoopers, big consulting firm, came out with a study that said one of the key reasons for the great resignation, they were like, what, let's look at all the factors, let's interview people. Um, one of the key factors was people felt like they couldn't be their true self at work. And so it aligns so much with what I'm seeing in the audiences I speak with, in my friends and colleagues, is that the beginning of the pandemic really shifted things for people. And people want more space to, to take up room, to be their full selves, and we have to acknowledge the social risk that that carries. And so the way that I approach authenticity in my work now is that I am not just sharing my own stories, but with consent, sharing the stories of people who don't share my identities. And so I'm sharing the stories of Black women, of a white evangelical Christian man. I'm sharing these stories because I can be a messenger that gives some spaciousness for people to see themselves and be able to feel more true to themselves in a setting that might otherwise not be that way. 
there's been such a shift and change in, I think, how people are showing up. Your story of coming to find your own voice and share it authentically, uh, it rings true for me. I mean, this week as we're recording, it's Transgender Awareness Week, and I have two posts going out on social media. One went out today, one this Saturday for Transgender Day Remembrance that are very explicitly identifying myself as part of the trans community. And I, you know, and I think those kinds of posts do get a lot of traction, um, not just from people who share those identities. Like, I think we appreciate those conversations. My LinkedIn has the algorithm for my LinkedIn has changed dramatically in the last six, seven months. Now I am seeing posts from so many people who are also speaking their truth and oh. uh, being real. And it makes me want to be on that platform and wants, wanting to engage. And there's the um, hashtag, this is what a professional looks like that my friend oh. started. Um, and then uh, there's uh, inked in, <laughs> hashtag inked in for folks with tattoos. And I just, it's very fun and creative. My friend, Ann Bana, who's a team member helping me with some copy and strategy she's just an inspiration on that platform and others and i think like you like it's just we are all craving more mm-hmm. and more realness we want to you know the whole human centered movement i i feel like you're riding this wave of it's all slightly different right it's slightly different language whether you say authenticity or human centered or empowerment or bring your full self to work whatever wherever the phrasing is mm-hmm. we all just want something more than clocking in and out at a job that we do for 40 years mm. And not all of us want to leave our jobs and become entrepreneurs. Some of us want to stay employed, but not leave our souls at home. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's what's so cool about what you're doing now is like really connected with this sort of zeitgeist moment. But I think the pandemic really shook up the world. And whereas we're watching, it's all settling like still, like we're not done with the settling of it. But I think people aren't going back to where they were. Mm-hmm. Everyone's shifted. And so we've held to make space for ourselves and others and find space. And it's uh, it's really interesting, like where you are with all of that. My curiosity is this. I, I always want to ask specifically around networking. Mm. So you have met so many different kinds of people. I feel like you're a collector of people. People probably like appreciate you because you listen to them and you hear their stories and you acknowledge them. But then you just know so many people. <laughs> so what do you do? So you have sort of your inner circle, the people you know you're going to either you know see often enough or when you catch up with them, it's like no time has passed. So there's those people. Then there's sort of the second and third layer or tier out, the people that you see once a year at a conference or you work with them five years ago but haven't had to cause to since. You like each other. I should preface with that. You enjoy each other. Baseline. You like each Baseline, other. Baseline. You enjoy each other's company. How do you nurture and sustain those kinds of connections? Do you have any habits, philosophies, or practices to yeah, nurture and grow the network you already have? It feels such it feels like such a beautiful and important question. And it's one that as my work expands and has a greater impact, is is one of the things that makes me um, sad or feel a little bit tender because my capacity for connection uh, doesn't match my desire for connection, right? Like I, I love getting to know people. I love being in deep community with people. And I'm now at a part of my life and career where I don't have capacity to say yes to all the things that I want to. And, you know, I think of a friend who booked me many times as a speaker and became a friend and, has had some life stuff go on that's made it really difficult for her to maintain connection in an active way. And I reached out to her to say, Hey, I saw, I was like, I was putting together a, it was, I redid my website last year and I put together like the archetype of who I wanted to work with, who is my ideal client. And she was the top of my list. So I sent her a little note to say, Hey, thinking of you. And she was like, I'm so sorry. I've been absent. And my reaction was like, hey, I expect this to be a lifelong thing. Like you tending to the rest of your life for a little while, like I am in no way offended. And she told me that the, my favorite tool to use, um, particularly earlier in the pandemic, my friend, Laura Sanders has a beautiful series called Color Me Flattered. And they're coloring compliments that you can color in 
and send to people. And this is one that a friend sent to me after I introduced her. It's always within arm's reach, excuse my reach. But it's, um, and I can send you a picture of it for social, but it's called, uh, it says growth looks good on you. And it's a flower and it's just so happy and smiley. And I find that sometimes sending a letter, especially a coloring sheet feels aligned with my energy and capacity. Like my kid and I will do it together, which is a real, (laughs) it's a real work of art. And to find ways that feel energy rich, like voice memos can feel really good to me and asynchronous communication. I just came out with my new demo reel today. So months in the making, years in the making. Um, It's all about authenticity. I'm really proud of it. It's on my website, liliagowlin.com. And one of my best friends from college sent me a video of her reacting to it. And we haven't seen each other in probably five years. She's a physician. She's very busy, right? Like I was in Houston and she was flown to Germany to do emergency surgery on a child in Germany. Like we're not going to have a lot of time to sync up for like a long flowing chat. We haven't seen each other in person in years. We've never met each other's children. And yet I feel so deeply connected to her and like, moments of tenderness we show up asynchronously usually it's a beautiful example i Mm. think that we often we hold ourselves to such a high standard for how we are supposed to show up Mm -hmm. or what this looks like in some kind of we're we're not meeting the grade but what you just described uh a voice note was my new favorite uh shout out to my friend blake fly who really he built a business doing voice notes <laughs> and I, he's really Im- impressed upon me, like how useful they are. Um, the coloring page, you know, taking time to create a piece of art that someone could put up on their, on their office. I have friends who make um, cards through, you know, third parties where you like take an image off of Facebook and you do something to it. And then they, that's the cover of the mm-hmm. card. And then I, I have them in my office then, right? Like, I'm not going to mm-hmm. just like throw this thing away. It's not like a random card from, you know, Hallmark. It's, so, it's something that they made for me. So I love that. And like the, the person doing a reaction video, I mean, these are the kind of ways to stay in touch. I also think you're great at the newsletter and the social media and just putting your voice out there, um, starting and, and keeping the container for conversations that are being had. Yeah. Robbie, I want to flag one thing there is a lot of my close friends say, if I haven't been in touch in a long time, they're like, oh, but I feel like I, I we're talking every week. And I have to say, beloved, if you don't respond, we're, I have no idea that you're reading it or like I'm not going into MailChimp and looking at your specific contact to see how often you open it. That's one direction. And so I think the parasocial relationships are so real with people I don't know that they feel like they know me. And that's, you know, I'm building a business based on being vulnerable. So I get that. But my close friends, I'm like, boo, you have to respond for me to know that you feel connected. Uh, So we're working on that. And then the, the last thing I'll add on that is the friend who is struggling, who said, I feel so disconnected. I'm so sorry. She, she messaged me that her mom had been at her house and seen one of the coloring sheets I had sent her on her fridge. And she wept and how moved her mother was because she said, I'm so glad you have friends who show up for you like that. And so the the cascading effect and the impact that it can have, I think goes so far beyond a quick little note, right? Like the friend who sent me this, like we worked together years ago and I, you know, the, the growth looks good on you. We're not in regular communication but it's still like on my calendar right by me and I see it every day. It's perfect. Hey, my favorite wrap up question. If we stay connected, which I have no doubt we will. And it's a year from now. And I realize, Hey, it's Lily. it's been about a year since we did that interview. I'm going to want to ask you, of course, like what's been up and what are you celebrating? So what will we be celebrating a year from now? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? I am going to be so excited to tell you the release date for my new book, which will have come out via traditional publishing. We'll have uh, tons of articles and publications like New York Magazine and Jezebel and New York Times. 
And the speaking clients that I have are so encouraging and excited because people feel seen. People see themselves in my story and feel like they can bring their whole self to work after having heard me speak. I can't wait to celebrate all of that. Sounds amazing. How can people find you and follow your work? I am Lelia Gowland on most platforms. So at L-E-L-I-A-G-O-W-L-A-N-D on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, which I'm on very rarely. I don't even need to say I'm not on Twitter because it doesn't matter anymore. And um, my website is leliagowland.com. As of today, I have a webpage entirely dedicated for meeting professionals So if folks are interested in having me come speak at their organization, that is a one-stop shop for all of the details. Brilliant. So we're going to put all the links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Lilia, thank you so much for this conversation. What a pleasure, Robbie. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lilia. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 317. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. And I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.